It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Kenny Williams played parts of six seasons with the White Sox, Tigers, Blue Jays, and Expos, but his second career in baseball has proved to be far lengthier and quite successful. A native of San Jose, California, Williams spent 12 years as the White Sox general manager, moving into the role of executive vice president in 2012. He put together the team that ended Chicago's 88-year championship drought in 2005. And while the Sox haven't been back to the World Series since that magical season, the current rebuilding plan has invigorated the 54-year-old executive. I sat down with Williams in his office at the White Sox Spring Training Complex in Glendale, Arizona, to discuss his decision to pursue baseball over football, what it meant to him to become only the third African-American general manager in history, and much more. Please be aware there is some strong language in this episode that might not be appropriate for children. Enjoy this conversation with White Sox Executive Vice President, Kenny Williams. Ken, appreciate taking the time. Thanks, always a pleasure to sit down and talk a little baseball. You uh, you grew up in San Jose, California. Who was your, your favorite team growing up? Uh, well, actually, it was kind of a combination of Oakland. I was born in Berkeley. Uh, most of my family was in Oakland, but my, my mother and father kind of broke away to San Jose, you know, in some of the later years. So I grew up actually an A's fan. Uh, spent a lot of my summers there. A's and Giants, actually. I spent a lot of my summers there. I say A's because uh, I actually snuck into the ballpark uh, with a few friends where the cannon used to be in the 70s. And was able to see guys like Joe Rudy, Reggie Jackson, Catfish, Bite of Blue, John Blue Moon Odom. I mean, all those guys were, you know, were, were my favorites. Uh, and occasionally we'd actually get over to see the Giants and I actually saw Willie Mays and Willie McCovey. And so when all of those guys, when I kind of graduated to the major leagues and I actually met all of these people and played against Reggie, actually, uh, and some of, some of them have become friends, it's kind of a surreal humbling um, uh, feeling. Sneaking into the ballpark, not something kids <laughs> of this generation can relate to. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a hole in the fence, exactly. you know, beyond right field. I actually, you know, we were losing so many games to the A's at one point in very weird ways in the eighth and ninth inning, walk-off fashion. I actually went up to Lou Wolf, who was the owner at, at that time, and I said, Lou, I think I owe you some money. <laughs> because this, you know, this there has to be a reason for this. I had my checkbook. I said, listen, I snuck into I approximate, approximately about 20 games. Let me write you a check so we can get rid of this curse. <laughs> That's little do we know. There was a story behind those losses. Yeah, yeah. Uh, your dad was a former track star at San Jose State, <clears throat> ran with John Carlos and Tommy Smith. Yeah. Uh, do you get your competitive nature from him? <laughs> you know, Carlos is my godfather, actually. Uh, it, it certainly didn't hurt for uh, me to grow up in an environment and family where, you know, you, you come home from running your first nine 300-yard dash and uh, you're not even welcomed into the club <laughs> <laughs> and, and actually taken out to the street. Uh, I was 17 years old, taken out to the street and... 
um, Carlos had on his hard sole shoots. My father had on some of the very, very early Nikes, you know, the ones that had four inch, <laughs> you know, soles on them. And we raced from foul pole to uh, foul pole, foul, uh, light pole to light pole. And uh, I came in third place that day. <laughs> so they were trying to explain to me the difference between world class and just another fast guy. <laughs> you were you were a pretty young kid back during those Olympics. Did oh, you, I was, yeah, I was a baby. Four years, three, four I was years 40, old. four years old. Did you learn about that as you got older? Did that, the fact that, you know, that those guys were involved in your life and one of them was your godfather, was that something that you... You know, interestingly enough, um, you know, you never know what you may be going through as a child that would shape your future. Um, and all the things that I saw my father go through fighting uh, the city of San Jose to become the first black firefighter had to actually go to court uh, death threats to him, uh, to the family, and living living that um, with him. I mean, I was in court at, uh, I think, nine or ten years old with him, and he was still fighting, and ultimately rose up the ranks uh, to become a chief. I watched uh, Carlos uh, and Tommy uh, literally, you know, struggle to find employment their entire life, but still um, try to lift people up, raise people uh, people's awareness to social injustices. I, uh, <clears throat> I, I I like to say that those formative years uh, helped me when I got my own death threats and, and issues when I became the general manager for the White Sox, uh, thinking back on those times and, um, and the preparation and the conversation. And, you know, the interesting, one of the most interesting things is when I tell people that story, they think, it was a uh, an all-black, pro-black household movement, um, you know, and, and solely that. But the thing that, <clears throat> and the le- one of the lessons that I learned during that time was it was all-inclusive. There were uh, white people in our house, um, uh, Mexican, um, uh, Asian, uh, you know, everyone who was against social injustice of any sort uh, came through our house and was part of the discussion. And... And people put their lives and jobs on the line that, and, and did not have to, people of non-color. Uh, so by the time I got to, you know, my place in this world, um, you know, I, I knew no other way than to have an all-inclusive environment. Um, and uh, conversations kind of came easily. You were a two-sport star, went on to play both, both <coughs> baseball and football at Stanford. Uh, Excuse me, I, I didn't play baseball. Oh, you didn't play baseball. I signed. I signed with the White Sox out of high school. Okay. and went to rookie ball first. Then I went in the fall. Then I came back and went and, and, and uh, showed up on the Stanford football field. On the Stanford football team, you played with a quarterback named John Elway. Yeah. Did you realize at the time you were playing with somebody who could become one of the all-time greats? Did he have that aura about him back in college? Uh, when I saw his first pass come my way, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, you, we literally had to, I think we were one of the first teams to put a jugs gun, uh, you know, in practice, uh, you know, because we had to, that was the only way you could simulate you know, how hard his ball was coming your way. Uh, and it was, it was impressive. It was impressive. The funny, funny story on that, um, you know, fast forward years later, you know, after you know all his great career and all the things he accomplished, uh, we're sitting uh, in Los Angeles and in Anaheim, and my son taps me on the shoulder. This is the ALCS game four, about the fifth inning. Taps me on my shoulder and says, "Hey, Dad, uh, 
John Elway's at the door and would like to come in, uh, should I let him in? And I said, Kyle, um, if I were you, I would go back and give him a quick yes before he knocks you on your ass. (laughs) 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 It goes in anyway. Um, So John, actually, he was an Angels fan, probably still is an Angels fan, and um, uh, came in and watched us go to the World Series against his team. And it was cool for him to come experience that and sit with me. And then fast forward, even a few more years after that, my, that same young man, Kyle, uh, he was injured, but he was on that Super Bowl team uh, of a, just a few years ago and has a Super Bowl ring to show for it. It's pretty cool. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, your head coach at Stanford said you could have played in the NFL. You chose baseball. Why? Uh, I've asked myself that a lot over the years. Um, that game came easy to me. But the challenge of this game, for some strange, uh, what's the word, uh, masochistic reason, (laughs) (laughs) Um, the challenge was right in front of me, and it was the only thing that I had done up to that point that uh, I didn't feel uh, I could just will my way through. And as it turned out, I never could will my way through, and that's how I became a 28-year-old executive. (laughs) You ended up playing for four big league teams, including the White Sox, over six years. You retired after the 1991 season. I didn't didn't retire. They retired. Well, you stopped playing. Your career was over at the end of I guess retired is a a questionable word. Uh, How did your experience as a player help you as you started to embark upon a front office career? You know, again, going back to some lessons in life, and this is another thing that I talk to, to young people about. Some, sometimes in your life when you think you're going through the worst period uh, that you can go through, it's actually on the other side a blessing. And as, as much as I had, um, I had been disappointed by not getting an opportunity to play in Detroit and then again in Toronto, uh, I had the good fortune of sitting the bench um, next to two men, Galen Sisko, the pitching coach with the Blue Jays, and Cito Gaston, the manager. And I learned more baseball sitting next to those two people um, in a very short period of time than I had learned in, in years previously. Uh, they were generous with their time, and and, uh, and I'm going to put Pat Gillick in there as well because uh, I would ask Pat Gillick about <clears throat> you know certain roster moves that he was making, and and unbelievably these people were just you know open and honest with me. And I don't believe if I didn't have that experience uh, sitting the bench where when I thought that was the worst thing that was happening to me at the time, if I didn't have that experience, I don't believe I would have been uh, trained well enough and equipped well enough to run the White Sox minor league organization, which I shortly thereafter was doing. You, uh, you served as a special assistant to Jerry Ronsdorf for a year, then became, as you mentioned before, the director of minor league operations. Did that for two years, were promoted to vice president of player development. As you're going through all these steps, is it in the back of your mind, I want to be a general manager someday? That was the same job, actually, a different oh, title, was, but no, the same job. I was still running, running the minor league system. It was the same job. Um, you no, know, it, was, it was mentioned, uh, but I, I had no desire to be that out front person and you know the the village idiot of the time <laughs> you know, it wasn't you, even social media back then yeah when you sit <laughs> when you sit in that chair you know I, I just you know I I've always been more of a uh, 
people don't believe this, you know, because I had to be the out front person for so long. Uh, but I think they see maybe now that I'm very comfortable, you know, allowing someone else to um, to be the out front person. Matter of fact, the first time he asked, I, I, I said, no, thank you. I loved player development. Uh, I, the, the young kids and seeing them grow, seeing them develop, seeing their energy, their enthusiasm and stuff, I, I still love it. And that's, you know, one of the things that I'm kind of I'm, I'm back in the, the, the mix on. So uh, being a general manager just wasn't plus, you know, you, you looked at the landscape and, you know, let's face it, there weren't too many people that looked like me that were getting those kind of opportunities. So, um, but getting still, when it was first mentioned that that could be a path that I was on, um, it wasn't so appealing. Following that up, you when you did get the job in 2000, you were only the third African-American man ever hired to be a big league GM. Was that meaningful to you? Um, yes, but not in the way that people may think. Um, I've always believed in being um, an example for the people that come behind you. Um, that is a direct um, result of how I grew up. And, you know, my, my mother being executive at PG&E and my father uh, doing what he did in the fire department and having people look towards them to find their own way. So I thought that that was, um, it, it was more important on that, uh, from that sense than it was for any personal. I, w- I, was, I was so busy fighting at that time so many things, I couldn't, I never had a honeymoon period of any sorts. The first day that I was named general manager, I went home to find uh, spray painted on the side of my house, no niggas going to run the Chicago White Sox, capital letters. Um, and had death threats, and I'm going to string you up by the pole. Jerry got uh, nigger lover um, letters constantly, and some of the other things I won't even, I can't even say. Uh, so it was it was hot and heavy, no time to do anything except focus on keeping my family safe and uh, the baseball team. Given your upbringing, given everything <clears throat> you watched your father go through fighting to become the first black firefighter in San Jose, was there a part of you that thought, is this worth it? I mean, I've been in this nice job running the minor leagues, nobody seemed to care. Now all of a sudden, I have no, this job. I'm, and a, f- I'm a fighter. <laughs> okay. I'm a fighter. And, and when that happened, then I wanted it. And I wanted to prove to people um, that not only are we going to do this, we're going to do it in a grand fashion and, and we're going to win a championship uh, here. And uh, I wanted to shut people up at that time. Uh, from 2001 to 2003, you and Jerry Manuel formed the first African-American tandem GM manager in MLB history. A decade later, you're named to the diversity committee for MLB uh, with the objective of increasing diversity in the game, particularly among black players. Have you seen considerable change in that area during the course of your career, specifically since you joined that committee? Here's what I will say. I I will say that there are some um, good intention people um, trying to advance things. Uh, Have I agreed with um, many of the decisions throughout the years? Um, the answer is no. <clears throat> uh, 
do I applaud uh, some of the things that have been put in place to try to uh, raise awareness of, of positions in baseball uh, an opportunity uh, you know recently uh, yes I do um, that's from the bottom up but uh, there's there's a there's a top-down level as well that I think uh, could and should be addressed um, and uh, even a, a, a person that sits in a position that I do right now, uh, I don't know that I see any advancement uh, in my future because I haven't seen any advancement in anyone's future along those lines. <clears throat> um, and, and I think that's all I'll, I'll say on it for now. Even the CEO of IBM doesn't have thousands of bloggers and reporters questioning every move and thinking they know better. When you have a GM job or your current job, do you need to have a thick skin to sort of brush aside uh, the criticism that will undoubtedly come your way, good or bad? The answer to that is a resounding yes. Especially in Chicago, I would assume. Uh, yeah, you know, the funny thing is throughout the years, you know, some of the relationships I've had with guys, uh, other GMs have been uh, very humorous and lighthearted. And I remember having this exchange with Steve Phillips when he was the Mets GM. We were talking one offseason, going back and forth of who's getting ripped the most. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he says, Kenny, are you in the office? I said, yeah, I'm in the office. So he sends me, he faxes me over a picture, evidently, of him on the back page of the, I think it was the post, and it was the, the head, his head on the body of a turkey. <laughs> <laughs> And, and so I had to call it back and say, you win. <laughs> you win. They haven't gone that far with me yet here. Um, and, you know, Brian Cashman and I have swapped stories over the years, uh, you know, in the same, same realm of things. But, and here's a guy who's got four rings and, uh, you know, should be headed to the Hall of Fame, in my opinion. Uh, but, yeah, you're, it's, it's part of the gig, man. And if you can't take it, then it's not the job for you. Has social media taken it to a whole I other think level? So. I think so. Uh, but what I've tried to counsel Rick on uh, and, you know, everyone else uh, who has aspirations around here uh, of ascending to, you know, uh, the next level, uh, certainly you're not going to be too busy to listen to these things and hear them, but be too busy and focused to pay much attention to it. And just stay off Twitter. In general, I can't get this to stay on Twitter. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Fair point. After the 2003 season, you said of your team, "quote Perhaps we have too many big swingers. We may have to get a few more grinders out there." Given what ended up happening with your team a couple of years later, was that an important change in philosophy for you? Yes. Um, you know, it was. A, it was listen, the Minnesota Twins. Uh, I still go to their ballpark and look up at the banners that they that they have during that period of time and feel like a couple of them should be hanging in our stadium. Uh, what makes it worse is they would point across the field and publicly say that that team, meaning us, is better than we are, but they won't beat us. <laughs> Talk about a slap in the face. Uh, but, it, but uh, you know, you learn through failures sometimes and and what um, we learned at that time was it's not necessarily the most talent 
that you can, you know, throw out there on the field and and expect success, higher levels of success. You it has to fit together, and it has to uh, fit together for the 162 game grind, and that doesn't necessarily mean. Uh, you know, the most talent. Sometimes you have to forsake a little talent here and there for the sake of uh, the team and the chemistry uh, and and the, the fit. The 2005 White Sox ended the franchise's 88-year title drought, went 11-1 in the postseason, won your final eight games. It was a pretty mm-hmm. uh, magical run for that team. What was it like for you to just watch <laughs> that team go? It didn't feel so magical in September when we went from a 15-game it might have been 15 and a half game down to what was it two um, they wasn't so magical then you know when everyone's writing about the historical collapses in baseball and and we actually were not playing that poorly uh, Cleveland was playing out of their minds <clears throat> uh, but it was uh, so it was it was a it was a stressful time and then when we got in the playoffs uh, things kind of guys you know kind of eased up a little bit and relaxed excuse me a little bit couple balls bounced our way as as Artie Moreno reminded me the other night over dinner <laughs> and um, uh, his wife is still upset about that still really <laughs> upset about that anyway um, yeah you know I, the funny thing about the clinching games at each level is I don't remember much about my own personal feelings uh, because I watched Jerry, you know, it had been <clears throat> a while. Uh, he has never gone to the World Series at that point, and um, so I watched him, and it was you know, like watching a, a little kid. And my enjoyment came through watching him, but not actually feeling the moment for myself. If that makes sense to you, the Red Sox had just broken their 86-year curse the year before. You guys break yeah. the 88-year curse, yet it seemed like it wasn't quite as, as celebrated as the Red Sox won. In Chicago, <laughs> did it feel like... They're still leaving us off of World Series this <laughs> week. <laughs> we, see, we see it every year on ESPN in Chicago. It's only had one World Series. Eh, don't forget about us, guys. <laughs> did, did, did it feel that big in Chicago? I mean, when you were in the city, you know what the fan base there is like. You know, even if it didn't maybe gather the national steam that that the Red Sox had the year before, could you tell what a big deal it was to people in Chicago? Right behind your left shoulder, there's a picture of the parade, and that's, that's a lot of people. <laughs> that's the reminder for me, as well as the image in my mind. I mean, over two and a half million people, I think, came out, and when we turned down that street, LaSalle Street, um, that's when the enormity of it really hit me. Uh, and then later on that evening when I'm watching television and the news shows are going out to uh, cemeteries and people have people put hats on cemeteries and jerseys on tombstones of people that didn't get a chance to see us do that. And the enormity of that really hit me um, and the responsibility uh, to to try to give people that joy again, and it really, you know, to this day fuels me, and that's why it's hanging in my office because I want to see that happen again. So you mentioned <clears throat> watching Jerry 
at the end of those series and sort of seeing what it meant to him. You once described him as being like a second father. Yeah. What have you learned most working for him all these years? Uh, it might be hard to boil down into one or two things, but... You know, if, if there's... Well, there's a couple things. One is... Um, the man asks the best questions ever. Uh, and you, you better be on your A game when he wants to talk about a particular topic because he's so smart and so like his capacity, you know, he's, he's running the Bulls, the White Sox, you know, the United Center and all that, that encompasses that. Uh, and yet he'll bring up something that he saw in a game three weeks ago <laughs> uh, and want to talk about it. And you, you need to be on point. Uh, you know, I, I, I've learned a couple of things with him. I learned, you know, it's sometimes it's just better to say, I don't know, <laughs> or I'll get back to you. Um, but more importantly, to ask questions, uh, to understand when a decision is made, it can be made for the right reasons with the right frame of, of mind and thought, and you could still be wrong, and that's okay if your process um, was correct in the first place. Uh, and to to treat people with uh, you know a certain humanity and loyalty and and humility, uh, and sometimes you've got to get out of your own way to do that. When you were promoted to your current role after the 2012 season, you widened your range of duties, but you retained final approval on all baseball decisions. Was it difficult to withdraw from the day-to-day action of being the GM? Oh, tremendously. So yeah, tremendously. So and I still miss it. Um, but, but the way we're currently structured, uh, we're more efficient, and it is a uh, uh, we're more efficient, and we are uh, certainly more strategically focused in the areas that we need to that that can maximize our own individual uh, strengths. Uh, and by that, you know, Rick Rick is better served than I am right now to run the day-to-day operations of the club. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I'm better uh, positioned to be the macro guy at this point and, and the player personnel side of things, the scouting of the players, the, the uh, development of them. You know, I enjoy that. That's, that's my, my strengths. And in that capacity, it allows me to um, kind of put a lot of the other things that a general manager has to go through on a day-to-day basis uh, aside and focus just on that. Um, even though, you know, the relationship that Rick and I have, um, we are talking about everything every day. Uh, and I think, you know, he respects, you know, my acumen in, in um the areas that I'm focused on, and I respect his, uh, and I'm I'm also at a point to where I believe that if you're in any leadership role, if you haven't developed the people who are um, reporting to you in such a manner that that if you walked out the door or something happened to you or you know whatever the case may be, if they're not uh, prepared to do the cho- job 
in its entirety. I don't know that you've been very successful, very successful in your leadership role. <clears throat> so um, I enjoy. I've, I've, you know, I've been so fortunate to have a guy like him around for all of these years because it truly is. I cannot imagine uh, a better uh, situation where where two people complement each other. Uh, in the way that we do and, and work in concert the way that we do. There have been a lot of teams that have gone to this structure of a you know, president of baseball ops or executive vice president of baseball ops and a GM. And it's, and it's you know, a lot of, it's all a matter of titles at this point, but, but there are multi-faceted uh, front offices where, you know, Tampa Bay has a couple guys, Minnesota has a couple guys, or a lot of these teams. There's been a lot of talk in the past few years about you and Rick aren't always on the same page, but I would imagine that nobody's ever always on the same page. And talking to some of these other teams, some of them have said, we, we like it better when we disagree because then you make sure you see all angles and then you come to a group decision. Isn't that the way it kind of has to work? Yeah, but so much, I don't know where it comes from. You know, and I, maybe it was because of my reputation as you know, kind of the patchwork, you know, roster kind of guy for all those years. But, um, you know, it's not as though during some of those years we didn't think about rebuilding uh, and have active conversations, you know, towards heading that way. Uh, the, the decision as an organization uh, was to not do it at that time. Those decisions aren't made by one person. Uh, but, you know, I wore it. And so when we started the rebuild, it was more commonly thought that it was um, more Rick's idea than anyone else's around. But it was a joint decision, just like it was, you know, to patch work some of the things together, you know, in the previous years. Um, you know, uh, there is a um, an evolution, I think, that comes along with with some of these jobs that uh, if you're not growing, you're not growing. So the guy that I was at 36 years old in, in taking the general manager's job, as I sit here about to turn 54, uh, you know, I've evolved. My leadership style has evolved. And um, certainly uh, what was perceived as maybe disagreements over the years um, were perceived more so outside of the organization than inside. Uh, I, this this guy and I can give each other a look a lot of times, and we don't have to say a word. We know exactly what the other's thinking at a given time, uh, and that's pretty remarkable. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you're going to disagree. You're going to debate some things but that's pretty much what it is between us is a healthy debate and sometimes we have to uh, sometimes we we find ourselves changing positions and starting to agree with the other person after the debate and then we got to to argue the side that we originally held but now don't hold (laughs) and the other guy holds it and we've got to figure that you know how to navigate through but but there's been a lot of laughs a lot of um, a lot of anguish Uh, but I think for the most part the efficiency in which we operate right now, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change for the world. So about a year and a half ago, the decision is made to go through a rebuild. Mm-hmm. Since the winter meetings in 2016, you guys have acquired 24 different players and 11 different trades. Uh, you mentioned that patchwork mode you had been in for, for many years, win now uh, philosophy. 
how weird did it feel to enter the rebuild and start to really tear it down with the goal of building it back up? We were excited. <clears throat> we were excited, and I personally uh, think I needed it. Uh, it it re- rejuvenated me. Uh, you know, the, the, the scouting and the player development um, juices started to flow again, and they're still flowing as a result. Um, it, it, it gave me back some, I think it gave me back new life. Uh, it really did. So, um, you know, every day I'm excited to come to the ballpark and see what these kids, the, the growth and development of these kids and who they are as people, as individuals, uh, and learn a little bit more about their lives. Uh, so we're, we're kind of excited around here. But at the same time, you know, there's that excitement on one hand and then the realization that things don't always work out as you planned so let's try to insulate ourselves against things going wrong and we have to keep pushing to add more excuse me more to the equation also at the same time you've been a very competitive person your whole life how Mm -hmm. tough is it to enter this process knowing that for a year or two the on-field product that you're going to be watching every day is not going to be likely what you have been used to trying to put on the field uh, I think we I, if we've had one we've had a dozen conversations uh, Rick and I and Jerry as well that when one of us gets a little um, ahead of ourselves a little antsy a little frustrated with with the losing uh, we got you know the others the others have to band together to remind you know okay here's the plan here's uh, our timeline and and, uh, and here's where we're headed. You know, it's not where we are presently. It's where we're headed. And, and I think if we, we we've had a lot of discipline um, uh, talks. Uh, you know, when we when we sat on Jose Quintana for as long as we did, and people thought didn't know whether we were going to uh, use or we were going to trade him or uh, keep him or whatever. It was it was really an exercise in discipline. Uh, with regards to the plan because we had identified these are the only deals that we're going to take and damn it if we don't get it then we're not going to make a move with them you ended up making that move yeah. trading him to the Cubs was there any hesitation in sending him across town knowing the, the rivalry and knowing the way your fans not on Rick and I's part not on Rick and my part no is that a misconception in, in, in sports in general that, oh, the Yankees and Mets would never make a trade, the Cubs and White Sox would never make a trade, but obviously we've seen them happen. But is it is it a situation where maybe their deal has to be a little better than somebody else's to, you know, or a lot better than somebody else's for you to... I think we've, we've all, always tried to operate on, um, you know, just a, a fair baseball deal basis. You know, if we can craft a deal that works for you, that works for me, then you know we can pick up the phone more easily the next time um, and deal. So that wasn't it wasn't about you know who was. We were very aware that Jose Quintana uh, could pitch them you know into another World Series. Very aware of that. We're trying to win our own. And what's best for the Chicago White Sox ultimately uh, has to take precedent over any sort of uh, emotional. Um, competition baggage we may have. We know about the rivalry. Does that rivalry seep up into the front office as well? Well, I'd rather beat them than not beat them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
I mean, them beat us. I assume that's the case with 29 teams, though, right? Yeah, but no, no more than uh, yeah. I, I'd rather. Yeah, I'd rather. I'd like. I like to beat them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think it might be more important for us than it is for them. Has their success over the past few years sort of ratcheted up the pressure for you guys to win again? Uh, we want to win again because we want to win again, uh, not because of what they're doing over there. And and uh, we we kind of take exception, you know, to to that notion. But you know, that's just that's talk outside these walls. We want to win because that's what we want to do. That's who we are. You guys have brought back several former players. Chris Getz is in your front office. Jim Tomey, Jose Contreras have various roles within the organization. Why has it been important to have people with organizational ties come back into the fold in front office type roles? Yeah, I, f- I felt that way. You know, uh, this goes back to when I was a farm director and, and brought in guys that played for the organization. Um, I want people to people here that understand we care about players, we care about people, uh, to be able to articulate their own personal experiences, uh, you know, with the front office and with the, the, the city, uh, you know, to, to expound on uh, what it means to be a white sock. But it's not just, we've got a lot of people from other organizations as, as well here, you know, so it's, it's not, you know, in a vacuum, it's just something that uh, in the case of, you know, the, the people that you mentioned, they are assets. They have a lot to offer. So we would be fools not to take advantage of that. Over the time you've been with the team, it's been a lot of good. and There's been some strange as well. Uh, you had some memorable words for Frank Thomas after he left the organization. Uh, he was criticizing the team. You said he's an idiot. Frank and I hugged it out a long time ago, many years ago. <laughs> Executives usually keep those kinds of thoughts to themselves, though. Was that an example of emotion simply taking over? Well, again, you're talking about a highly competitive individual in his 30s at that time. We were fighting against a reputation. I was fighting against uh, a reputation that we weren't spending enough money. Ownership wasn't spending enough money, so I was combating that. Um, I had a very outspoken, you know, manager as well, you know, throughout a lot of those years, and and, and there was some um, defense of that uh, and some, you know, uh, maintenance as far as that was, con- uh, was concerned, as well as, you know, some of the bias I talked to you about earlier when I first you know, uh, was assigned to the job. Uh, there was a lot going on, and I wasn't going to let the organization. You weren't going. You weren't going to talk about my manager, and I wasn't going to let it go without, you know, me defending him, or the owner, or uh, some of my players, uh, anyone else, or or certainly our desire to win as an organization. Uh, I wanted to change the way people thought about us. And that meant at that time fighting uh, and publicly being out there a little more than, as you see <laughs> these days, uh, I, you know, I, I, I feel necessary uh, to be. So it is, it, again, it's an evolution and a, it was a struggle to get 
people to talk about the Chicago White Sox at a championship level because I believe you have to begin to talk about it before you can start to visualize it ever coming true. So um, that was part of the strategy at that time that I, I felt like I had to employ. And if you tried to compromise that, I didn't care who you were. You were going to, uh, my feelings were going to be known to you and to everyone else. Now, as I sit here at, at closing in on 54, um, there are different ways I would handle it today. Uh, some of those things and then, you know, I always wanted to be this kind of executive. <laughs> I always, you know, no, no, seriously, to have a certain, um, to have a certain, um, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, a sit back, I guess it not always take the boat into the crashing waves head on. Maybe wait till tomorrow when the water settled down a little bit and then sail nice and smoothly. <laughs> Seems like a, a better path. Yeah. Uh, has there been a more bizarre situation you've been involved with? You've had a couple of years now in hindsight to think about it or, or reflect on it. The Adam LaRoche Chris Sale situation, was there anything in your career that's quite been like that? <laughs> uh, you know, most people probably would say no. But, you know, we had some very active, lively years here for for a while. Uh, some interesting situations and characters. But that was that that's certainly one that's right up there. Um you know, I, I I I was acting uh, how I needed to at that time, and uh, I thought was handling it in the way that um, would have led to a resolution that uh, was good for everyone. Um, obviously, it became a thing, uh, and it certainly, you know, with regards to some of the Chris's statements, Chris and I have talked about it. You know, a number of times I know Chris. He knows me. Chris is a lot like me when I was younger. So, and we used to talk about that all the time. So, while he said what he said, I know he did not. That he doesn't feel that in his heart from the time that he was drafted. Uh, I've been nothing but honest with him and told him he was going to be in the big leagues in three or four weeks when he got healthy. And everyone said, you know, are you serious? You know, can he can he be trusted? To and he, and he and his agent called around, and they found out. Yeah, you can trust what that guy says. I don't think I've been inconsistent with that, and I still root for Chris. Kind of a text last year when he was doing well, and um, and as as far as LaRoche is unfortunate because you know I loved the kid. I, you know, they 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 they're 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 good people. Um, and I hate that that, you know, happened in that fashion, um, you know, but very difficult. You can't turn back the clock and, and uh, handle things differently than you did. Yeah, I, I don't know what I could have done differently, but I, w I would certainly try. Another GM once said of you 
with Kenny, there's no BS. I like that. He's not calling to fill you out. He's not calling to play games. With Kenny Williams calls, you know he means business. He wants to get something done. Have you always been a very straightforward, no-nonsense kind of person? And where do you think yes. that traces to? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think you just, this is how I want to be dealt with. So this is how I deal with people. You know, I'm, I'm going to give you all of me. Um, not going to hold anything back. This is, this is what you know, the old saying: "What you see is what you get." And I think it helped. At one point, I think we made Billy and I were kind of going back and forth in terms of making the most deals in baseball over a decade. Then um, Jerry Depoto came along and blew you both away. Jerry's got a long way to go. <laughs> uh, you know, and that's how you, you, I think, accomplish those things, by being straightforward. People people know and trust you. Uh, so it, it makes me, it's, you know, I'm, I feel good when someone, you know, says that publicly, and that's, that's a nice, uh, nice thing to say. But um, that same approach didn't necessarily bode well for me in dealing with agents and contracts. And that's what I mean by sometimes you got to get out of your own way, get out of your own ego's way. And I recognized early on that Rick was much better than I was and uh, was more patient and was willing to do the dance uh, and good at it. Uh, so um, you've got to step out of, get out of your own way. And, and you know, and I, I think, you know, then fast forward to the many years after I, I stopped doing that and we're still um, we're still in a place where we respect each other and enough to where we take advantage of each other's strengths and support each other in our weaknesses and it just works last one for you in early October of 2005 before you guys won the World Series you were quoted as saying that if the White Sox won the World Series, you could, quote, ride off into the sunset. In 2005? Before that playoff run. Oh. Or sometime early in, that, in that, that October. Here we are 13 years later, and you're still at it. What drives you year after year? Oh. I, I really want to see what it feels like to get on the stage and soak it in, the, the, in its entirety. I, didn't, I soaked in Jerry's experience. Just watching him literally from the last out until we got on the bus. So, and then when we got on the bus, I turned to Ozzy and the coaches and I said, "Hey, listen, we got a couple of things that we got to get done here. You know, you know what do you guys want to? <laughs> what do you want to do with this, this, and this? You know, roster spot." And Ozzy looked at me and said, "Kenny, are you effing?" Effing <laughs> crazy! You having crazy? You talk, we just won the World Series, and you're talking about what we're going to? Like, well, yeah, the GM meetings are next week. <laughs> I'm behind the eight ball here. I'm behind everybody. Everybody else been working for a month. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I hate being behind. <laughs> What's it like walking to the GM meetings, having just won the World Series? You're sort of the, the toast of good, the week. That's a good feeling. That's a good feeling. You. Uh, I mean, listen, man, you're. I'm that kid, still to a large degree, that used to sneak into the A's games, you know, when in the 70s when they were good. And when Reggie Jackson comes around, I don't see it. 
I, I kind of see a Yankee because I remember the four home runs, but I see that number nine in right field because it was the first thing that I would see when we snuck in where the cannons were at the old ballpark there. Uh, old ballpark is still the same ballpark. <laughs> um, so I'm still that kid. And when they won, there's a certain pride. And I saw that in, in the streets of Chicago and the kids in Chicago. I still have people say thank you walking down the street. It just happened yesterday here in Arizona. Still saying thank you for, you know, the World Series and you guys, hey, you know, you guys look like you're on the right track and stuff, man. If that can't fuel you, nothing will. You know, you uh, we want to desperately make um, that happen again behind the shoulder, that parade happen again. And, and um, you know, give the people give the people what they're looking for. You're, you're a true pro. You started with the sneaking into the Oakland Coliseum, and you finished with the sneaking into the Oakland Coliseum. <laughs> Kenny Williams, White Sox Executive Vice President, thanks very much for the time. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, I did too. Many thanks to Kenny Williams for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. Our next episode will feature a conversation with Giants Executive Vice President of Baseball Operations, Brian Sabian. We'll talk about his years as the Yankees scouting director, during which he played a role in the drafting or signing of the Core Four, his move to San Francisco, where he's built three World Series champions with the Giants, and why he and manager Bruce Bochy have been such a successful pair. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinzand. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.